B -b -b bonus episode why are we doing a bonus episode because this is the week head talks is launching this week this is always so exciting and nerve-wracking launching a new project like this and i'm just oh man guys i am trying to i'm trying to m measure my expectations a little bit i'm i'm trying to calm it down a little bit because I am so excited for this thing. I got some real grand ideas popping up in the in the old noggin and boy, in my mind right now this is this is going to be one of the most special things I've done in my entire career. So, kicking it off in Lincoln, Wichita, Oklahoma City, Dallas, and Austin. I got Sophia Rocklin, anthropologist, co-author of the book When Plants Dream, joining me. Just one of the best communicators I have ever seen so good at public speaking. Holy crap. Guys, I've been doing these stand-up science shows. Some people are awesome at public speaking. Some some guests aren't as good, and it makes all the difference in the world. And I, I the head talks I just needed to make sure I had someone that was going to knock it out of the park. And Sophia is going to do just that. We're also already lining up some dates in February. More details soon. And the better these shows do, the more cities we're going to book. Basically, I have to, uh, we're seeing if it all works out. Sophia's going to tag along with some more in February. But um, who knows what she's if she's going to be up for doing more or not? Um, we don't know just yet until after this, um, after this kind of trial run. Either way, we're going forward with head talks, and either way, even if she is with, we're going to be getting different guests in every city. Um, so a lot more, a lot more news to come. A lot more work trying to figure out getting the right people in each city with head talks than stand-up science. You know, every city has a college um, and, and a zillion professors. Not every city has, uh, has a zillion psychedelic researchers. So this one's going to be trickier in terms of uh, coordinating it, booking it, everything else. And the reason why I'm putting more time and effort into this and doing something that's going to be quite difficult to pull off from a production point of view is that the show from a show point of view it's going to be one of the single best on stage experiences that i have had it's a half comedy half science show about psychedelics one of my favorite topics in the entire world and not only that but i'm going to do things like i'm having the artist that made the Here We Are Eye, Topher Sipes, on the Austin show, having um, ha having a guy Thomas Ray in Oklahoma City who who does a bunch of stuff uh, about what what DMT what DMT is doing to the brain, and he's like a legend in the field, really cool guy. He's been on Stand Up Science before. And um, and then we're doing things like getting together with local groups. Instead, uh, in Dallas, I'm going to have a couple of the people that work with Students for um, Sensible Drug Policy organization and Decriminalizing Dallas organization joining us for the Q&A section and doing things like that. Every city, we're getting local groups together for afterwards. There's going to be an hour meet and greet after every show. Sophia's going to sign books. We're going to answer questions for people, and we're going to get everyone together so people can meet the others in their community afterwards and look to start their own groups and have things kind of start expanding from there we're hoping to use these shows to inspire people to get together be talking more about these things especially in in places that that need to hear it the most that's why we're going through the middle of the country oklahoma city wichita lincoln nebraska dallas austin texas well austin i mean that's going to be an easy one of course but um it's going to be really cool to to be able to you know, the psychedelic community in cities like that are really underserved. There's no entertainment, anything like this, um, 
for them. And frankly, there's no other show like this anyway. So hopefully, hopefully doing a lot more shows coming up. I'm feeling like I'm rambling a bit right now because I am beyond thrilled. So if you know, I know you didn't hear you chances of you living in one of those cities is slim but you might know someone in those cities um so do what you can to uh retweet or posts about it or share it on facebook or instagram i'm kind of digging instagram uh, and as far as social media goes i i've been uh i've been dreading it i've been dreading joining and my uh how much i was dreading being involved in instagram um, it was, uh, I guess, blown out of proportion because um, so far, so good. It's going all right. So you can go to Shane Moss Comedy to follow me there as well and enjoy today's special bonus episode. This one we've been putting off for weeks because we've had timely episodes coming up for with the holiday season and everything, but I have been so excited for you guys to hear this one um, for a while. I say, you know, I say this a lot. What choice do I, you know, you guys, oh, this is a great episode. And, and I do, I really love every episode that I do. But this one, you know, sometimes you just have like better chemistry with people or some people are just more fun on the podcast and just better at kind of talking about big subjects in an accessible way uh and and interesting way um for the for the general public and amy is one of those folks so i'm i'm thrilled to uh hear what you guys think about this episode all right enjoy are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast today i am at duke university talking with associate professor of biology amy schmidt is joining me amy thank you this is so i i had you on stand-up science in raleigh very recently and then i happened to be swinging back through town emailed you yesterday and this is so nice of you to find time for me and here we to are come on the show here we <laughs> here are we. <laughs> it's the the name of the of the podcast came from i i often um I, I read nothing but science books and i often find myself kind of getting swept away in the confusion of just the amount of information that there is to know and not knowing exactly what to do with that information sometimes and when I get overwhelmed I just go well here we are (laughs) and uh, makes me feel better for some reason Um, I get overwhelmed too (laughs) it's a lot to know (laughs) it is a lot to know so so what do you study so I'm a microbiologist and I'm interested in unusual microbes that live in extreme conditions so the limits of life on earth um the saltiest um lakes such as the great salt lake the dead sea places like that and i'm interested in how they survive there Hmm. so is is this kind of a window into our origin story potentially some of this stuff in a way yeah so the um domain of life that i'm interested in are the archaea and um recent studies um, using genomics of microbes that are isolated from various crazy places like deep sea vents and the driest deserts, the Atacama deserts, um, places like that. Um, All of that sampling has led to a redrawing of the tree of life. Hmm. And it's helped us us to understand that the tree of life is almost, uh, there are a lot of microbes, single-celled free-living microbes in the tree of life. Um, We're oddities and being human and multicellular um and so there's the bacteria which is one domain and the archaea at least the other domain and um like organisms like us and trees and yeast stem out of the archaea Hmm. so this is only in the last few years but yes it definitely teaches us about our origins and so i teach a class called the origins of cellular life and we bring this kind of idea into the discussion so i'm not a phylogenetic tree drawer um, I'm a molecular biologist, so I study how the molecules are working to help the microbes survive. 
Hmm. So I just, I wonder if it was our show that you first told me about Arkea. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because, you know, the interesting thing is since then, it, it, this is maybe like, uh, you know, confirmation bias at work, but I swear I've been just like seeing Arkea and hearing about mm-hmm. Arkea ever since. Are, yeah. are they like a hot new thing going on? It, yeah. And uh, I mean, just because there's so much discovery going on right now. Um, there are new sampling methods to go out into these crazy places. Um, there are new um, genomics techniques where you can just scoop some scoop a spoon in the ground and take some DNA out and figure out who's there right away with sequencing technologies. There are new um, genetic techniques for bringing those organisms into the lab and asking questions about what does this gene do and how does it help the microbe survive and function. And those are pretty new, like the last five years or so. And also they're um, relevant to some new space missions, like the the Mars 2020 um, rover that's going to go up. I'm not personally involved in that, but I have some colleagues who are interested in figuring out whether they can um, find evidence of, you know, complex organic molecules on Mars. And so there's a lot of interest in studying these extreme environments because a lot of them are simulation type environments for you know, if there were life on Mars, what would it look like? Mm. And could it survive there? And if it could survive, how would it do it? And things like that. Hmm. So Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, so I'm kind of remote, you know, I'm doing about three stand-up science shows a week in different cities, two guests each one, and then also doing this podcast, talking with six to eight different academics of different fields uh, a week. And I don't always have the easiest time keeping it all straight. But I think the discussion on our show may have may have came up when I was talking about my understanding of, of reproduction, uh, mm-hmm. sexual reproduction starting 1.2 billion years ago, possibly being driven by um, a, as a defense for, uh, for bacterial threats in larger organisms. And then, um, but archaea is this completely different model of looking at things. Yeah, one of my colleagues in, um, uh, one of my colleagues is studying how um, archaea that live in high salt environments can actually two cells can fuse together and exchange DNA. And, you know, you could argue that that's, that could be the origin of sexual reproduction because, you know, there are two different species can actually come together and make a new species out of that. Hmm. Um, But, you know, you could also say that bacteria, you know, one bacterium can inject DNA into another one. That's how antibiotic resistance is passed along because they pass DNA um, from one cell to the other. That's usually within one species, but um, there's also interspecies communication in bacteria that live in regular places. Hmm. So, you know, the simplest, quote unquote, simplest microbes are communicating all the time with chemical signals and passing DNA back and forth. But the archaeal example is unusual. You don't hmm. usually get two different cell, cells of two different species coming together, fusing and exchanging like a lot of their genomic DNA. I mean, it seems like such an incredible strategy. Why isn't more things like, why can't we just ET touch fingers and then I get your knowledge of <laughs> microbiology and and you get my amazing sense of humor? Yeah, there, well, the, I think the trade-off is that there there's a lot of toxic DNA that can come along. And if there's a, you know, a, mu- a mutation where you break a piece of DNA and fuse it with another piece, you could break something. Ah. You know, like deleterious mutations can mm. happen that way too. But if you live in an extreme place, you're willing to hedge your bets because you're being hit from all sides all the time. Hmm. So there's some more sort of, I see it as a sort of, you need to come up with new new ways to innovate new traits um, if you're faced with an extreme stress and you have to make a decision right then, you know, oh gosh, there's a huge raindrop falling on me and I'm used to salt. So Hmm. what am I going to do now? Hmm. Might as well grab some DNA from my neighbor <laughs> <laughs> and and deal with the consequences. Yeah, so that, a, I think those huh. trade-offs might be a little bit different in the extreme environment. And that's kind of one hypothesis that we're looking at in my research is how, how do these microbes make split-second decisions? And how do they use not only one molecule, but networks of molecules interacting with each other to make those decisions in, in real time? That's amazing that you say split second decisions too, because that that's uh, I mean, it seems like it, I mean, it's 
uh, a little bit anthropomorphic in a, in a way of of, of uh, clearly there's mechanisms at work that are being triggered in some sort of if then mm-hmm. kind of programming, which is probably how all life is working ultimately, and we just call it decisions. But um, but, but what what are some of the mechanisms at work there? Yeah, so um, in my group, we're interested in in particular in how genes get turned on and off at the right time in the right place in the right situation. And um, that level of regulation um, is um, really at play in this situation. So there's um, molecules that are um, sort of master regulators and they receive the signals, the stress signals from the environment, and they um, tell genes to turn on and off at the right time so that they can make proteins to do the work to um, help the cells survive. Hmm. And it's not just, you know, if you're being hit with multiple simultaneous stress signals like um, desiccation or heavy sunlight, UV radiation, all at the same time, then you need lots of these regulators um, to, to say w- which genes should turn on and which should turn off. So this is this is the other hot topic of epigenetics that everyone's talking about <laughs> these days. I feel like w- when it comes to humans, like people are very excited about it, and maybe it's my understanding is that maybe it's overplayed in in terms of how much it's interacting in a in human um, life. Would, would you say that it's that it's happening more in uh, say some something like archaea? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I can't really say much about how it's played or not overplayed in the human situation, because that's not my field. But I do know that um, there are recent discoveries in my field of archaea that archaea do epigenetics. And um, it's brand new um, research. So one of my colleagues um, uh, discovered that um, you can, so so he was exploring the limits of life, and he studies acid-tolerant archaea that live in really high temperature. And he was asking, well, can they be even more acid-tolerant? So he evolved them in the lab to be more acid tolerant. Hmm. And when he looked at what the changes were in the genome, there weren't any mutations. Like they didn't do it at a genomic level, they did it at an epigenetic level. And so he's in the process of trying to figure out what those changes were. Was it like a chemical modification to the DNA? Was it something with genes being turned on and off? And that field is wide open right now in, in archaea. And we have a project in my lab also studying epigenetics in the hypersaline adapted archaea. And the archaea have the same proteins that humans do. It's called histone. And it can modify, do the epigenetics and chemically modify the DNA to change its status um, uh, under certain situations. And so um, what's interesting is that in these hypersaline, the, the high salt bugs, um, they use this histone protein in a completely different way. So they're they're not doing the chemical modifications to DNA. They're not changing the packaging of DNA. And so um, even though you have these really sort of these organisms close to the root of the tree of life and they have, you know, epigenetic proteins that are similar to those of like humans or yeast, they're doing something different. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people assume, oh, they have the same protein that's where the function comes from evolutionarily. Well, it may be. <laughs> so I think there are a lot of changes that can happen. Although there are other types of archaea that have histone proteins that do function the same way as humans. So one of the questions we're asking is what's the true um, functional evolutionary progenitor? Like where did that function come from rather than, rather than where did the actual gene come or protein come from? Hmm. So epigenetics is a hot topic in the field of archaea right now because there are these you know, um, human-like or gene, gene um, uh, yeast-like or, you know, like higher organism type proteins that are involved in epigenetics that, and we're like, well, what are they doing in these ancient, you know, w- organisms that resemble ancient life? Hmm. So. so when you have like a new, uh, new hot um, kind of research field, open up some new discoveries made, the, the history of say epigenetics or archaea, I say Ikea, Archaea, 
Yeah, I said it. I nailed it. You said Arkea, yeah. (laughs) I want to say Ikea sometimes. (laughs) It's just like, just similar. There's like, you build it yourself. There's like some instructions. And some of them follow the instructions. Others just try to wing it and put it together themselves. Some more stable cells than others. And sure, that looks like a bookcase, but I'm not going to set anything (laughs) on it. I don't don't trust your building skills. Um, uh, But but when this this first uh, is discovered... Was some of the stuff first met with skepticism or were people excited right away? And then once it starts taking off, is this this now something that people are flooding into or or where is this field at right now? Yeah, so uh, Archaea were discovered in 1977 by Carl Woese and George Fox. And they, um, up until that point, the tree of life was drawn based on how things were shaped, like how cells were shaped, um, what like traits people could see with their you know like under the microscope or with their eyes you know trees have leaves and they have branches and what color are the leaves and things like that Mm -hmm. um with microbes it was really tricky because a lot of microbes are sort of round or rod shaped and they sometimes swim around and sometimes don't but they're kind of you know small cells and um so people kind of lumped all of those together and called them prokaryotes Mm. um karya means cell and pro means I don't know what pro means old maybe mm. i don't know <laughs> but um they sort of lumped them all together and then when carl was and george fox started looking at um sort of these molecular clock genes that all of life have and they could sort of classify according to the genes rather than the rather than the shape of the cells they found this new domain of life called the archaea and yes it was met with skepticism mm. a lot of skepticism and um, to the point where in 1990, he wrote a paper urging people not to say the word or write the word prokaryote because it wasn't sort of a, a de- it wasn't a phylogenetic definition. It wasn't a gene-based definition. It was based on this old idea of the shape of cells, which was not a good classifier. Hmm. So, so yeah, there was some skepticism. And there's still not a huge amount known about them. There's a lot, they're understudied still. Hmm. When you say molecular clock gene, what, what's that? So we all have um, we all have these molecular machines called ribosomes that um, all of life have, um, and the ribosome is this factory that takes messages from the DNA and makes them into proteins. And proteins are the workhorses of the cell. And so this protein making factory, um, there are parts of it like. Um, there are parts of it, genes in it, or that may, that make it up, that um, are across all life. It's fundamental to all life, and every living thing has a ribosome, and they have a ribosome gene, a gene encoding the ribosome. Mm. And you can compare those to each other, and you can tell based on how different they are from each other how all of life is related. Mm. So you can build a tree, a tree of life in, of every living thing that we know of. And you can say how related they are to each other based on these these genes. Hmm. Um, so we we can say, um, you know, I'm much more similar to a tree than these two archaea archaea are to each other. Hmm. <laughs> For example, is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. It's true. Whoa! So you just know about the relatedness of all of life by looking huh. at these genes. Well, so the archaea. This is. This sounds like these are. Uh, tremendously diverse is is mm-hmm. the is the diversity mostly being catalyzed by extreme pressures or are these archaea also just kind of mixing it up for fun just just to party <laughs> and <laughs> is, it, is it is it always just like a really desperate situation where all of a sudden there's a raindrop or you, where you weren't looking for that or are they are they always like um uh, you know in, in a way um hedging hedging bets for that's a, that's a really great question so archaea are famous because they were found in extreme conditions and there was a sort of confirmation bias for a while where you know if we go to look in extreme conditions we're going to find archaea and um, there's a hypothesis um, in the field that maybe it's just because archaea dominate in energy-limited environments. They're really crafty, and they have a lot of different d- ways of getting energy um, that's really diverse. But now, as we as researchers in my field are discovering more and more archaea, they're finding they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one of my colleagues discovered the, dom- the phylum called Talm archaeota, and it's all over your skin. 
right now in mine. And Gross. <laughs> there are um, uh, methane-producing archaea in the gut, um, and they have been um, linked to, you know, the balance of archaea with other microbes in the gut is important for health. There are no pathogenic archaea yet discovered. Um, but archaea really are everywhere. They can live in regular environments. They can live extreme environments, similar to bacteria, which is the other domain of life um, besides archaea. But um, archaea tend to dominate in those really extreme limits of life um, and energy-limited environments, although bacteria can sometimes be there too. So, I, I mean, so they stuck out a little more just because they, they do tend to monopolize the populations of the harshest environments and, so. and that's especially true of the ones i study so in the okay. hype in the super high salt environments archaea tend to dominate like mm. in you know salt evaporation ponds um for harvesting salt or in the dead sea or the great salt lake places like that they tend to dominate hmm. yeah um is, is there uh, so uh I, I mean i feel like archaea is gonna gonna win archaea is gonna be around a lot longer yeah it really yeah it really puts puts things in perspective for me you know like um you know they've been here as long as there's been life on earth which you know depending on how you measure it could be anywhere between 3.7 and 4 billion years ago Mm. Uh, 4 billion is a little bit of an outside estimate but and then i think well and they are living in the most extreme places you know all over the all over the world maybe on other planet well not, archaea might not be on other planets, but there could be life on other planets. And, it, you know, um, and so like we're probably going to be around for a little while and then microbes will be around a long time after that still. Yeah. So it puts things into perspective for sure. Well, yeah. I mean, they're already crawling on our skin and invading oh, yeah. our lives. What, yeah. what are they? Are they just chilling there? Are they, are they so, yeah. So that's any? a really good question. I just went to a conference last summer and that was the first ever, you know, you hear a lot about the human microbiome. And it was the first human archaeome session. So people were talking about the archaea that are in and on our skin and in our gut and wherever. And so far, it looks like they're kind of just hanging out. But I think there's probably a lot more to it than that. Like there have been some studies done where methanogens are, you know, connected to certain the balance of, you know, methane producing archaea needs to be in balance with other parts of the microbiome or you can get things like uh unhealthy situations but there aren't any pathogens per se yet hmm. so but well, yeah, they're all st- over it's still probably not helping out our ocd fans scrub the archaea yeah. off of themselves but most of most of your microbiome is friendly okay most of it is yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I, I occasionally you get an overgrowth of a pathogen i'm not a you know a microbiome human microbiome person but i just hear about this stuff about my colleagues working on the archaeal microbiome Hmm. oh yeah but so how much has this changed our understanding of the very origin of cellular life um yeah well uh i think you can really learn a lot so if you look for example um there's been a recent discovery of this uh domain of um of this lineage of archaea called osgard archaea and they have a lot of attributes of um, higher organisms called eukaryotes. Mm. Um, and it gives us a lot of information about how the first eukaryotic cells formed, the ones with the nucleus, um, which eventually became human and eventually became trees and yeast and fungus and things like that. Um, so that's that dis- the discovery of that archaeolineage is really redrawing the tree of life because it's and it's giving us a huge amount of understanding about or new hypotheses about how eukaryotes formed. Um, going further back in the tree, it has effects because it helps us know sort of where the branches uh, break off of the trunk of the tree. And so we can also infer then backwards to the last universal common ancestor, which is the very root, like roots of the tree. Hmm. And so um, it tells us about you know what the attributes of the first cells may have looked like um, um, there are hypotheses now that they were um, super high temperature adapted because they were um, perhaps uh, starting in these deep sea hydrothermal vents that are warmer um, and that had certain attributes. Um, for example, there are hi- um, alkaline hydrothermal vents um, in the deep sea that 
that have, you know, pH gradients that um, resemble in the correct direction the charge gradient across cells that give them metabolic capabilities. Mm. And so that it's, I think, telling us a lot about the origin of life. Um, I wouldn't say that is necessarily peculiar to archaea. I think if you study microbiology in general, it can tell you something about the um, the origin of life because bacteria also have, which is you know the other domain besides archaea, or bacteria also have incredibly diverse um, capabilities. Um, they can make all kinds of chemicals. They can take in, they can, you know, take in um, carbon dioxide and hydrogen and and live, mm. you know, off of you know, and there's you know uh, microbes that are photosynthetic that can eat sunlight and air. Hmm. How so, how close are we uh, to having an accurate an accurate picture of the very first moment of life? Are, are we like well, we have an idea of like once there was a hundred cells, we kind of know what happened <laughs> after after that. But how, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think the hard part is that you can't go back in time and test your hypotheses. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's fossil evidence, which gets kind of fuzzy. And I'm not a geologist. I would uh, I'm I would. Um, encourage a discussion with the geologist who knows more about that part. But, you know, the fossil evidence can get fuzzy and because there is a lot of change in, in, the, in, the, um, uh, in the geological structure. If you go back 3.7 billion years ago, you can get things that look like biomarkers that far back, but that gets fuzzy. Um, there are also there's also evidence from genetics, right? So we can infer infer what the tree looks like, infer what the attributes were of those first cells. Um, I, I think we're doing better now than we were before we knew about all of these cool microbes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but we still need to have a lot more, um, you know, maybe synthetic biology experiments where. Um, the type of experiments where, you know, for example, can you create uh, an alkaline hydrothermal vent in your lab and, you know, test the pH gradients and things like that and test, you know, can you make organic molecules in that, you know, synthetic vent? And there are folks that um, uh, some of my colleagues are trying to do that. That's not my research. Some of my colleagues are trying to do that. So I think, um, you know, there there are a lot of experiments that could be done. But I think the whole domain of origins of life research, one problem is that there are a lot of different hypotheses about how the origin of life, how, how life began. And it's really hard to test because hmm. um, the direct evidence is hard to get. What about as we're making um, advancements with um, computer models and, and figuring out That's, more yeah. accurate algorithms and how these, have, I mean, theoretically in the future, if you kind of sort of know how things are now and sort of some of the steps going backwards rather than running a simulation going going forward can't you almost run it backwards to see yeah some there are some definitely some papers that i've read where people have done simulations yeah mm-hmm. yeah so are the arcaria are they doing better in in these really harsh um climates where there's not other life out there or do they do they flourish just as well and in, in other it, it just seems like we, you get into an environment where there's all sorts of life now it's maybe harder to find your your niche yeah that's a good question I, so the it depends on the extremophile you're talking about the extreme organisms so for example the high salt adapted ones can't live at low salt if you put them, we the way we kill them in the lab was we pour water on them. If we're done with, with our experiment, we pour some water on them and they explode <laughs> because they they need huh. to keep they keep the osmotic balance, the salt balance, by bringing um, ions inside their cell. So they have a really high potassium on the inside to match the sodium concentration on the outside. So um, I don't know if you've ever seen the pink, the Himalayan pink salt. Yeah. Yeah, they like to live on there on those. They really like it on those salt crystals. So if you pour water on them, they don't They do not do so well. But they do survive all the way down to, you know, like a pretty large range of, of salinity. Um, whereas, you know, organisms that are uh, adapted to lower salinity, they don't have as big of a range. They can't go up super high to high salinity. So they thrive and they actually need high salt to grow. 
But if you look at, for example, high temperature adapted um, organisms, they can't necessarily grow at room temperature, but they don't die. So they, they, they need it to be boiling temperature, some of them, but they don't, you know, you can let them rest and, um, at room temperature and they're not quite dead. Yeah, as I've, in our modern environment, there's, I mean, there's always an environmental changes happening everywhere and there's some things that benefit from it some things that uh, that do worse from it and is this like uh, global warming our arcarius just or archaea just like yes global warming (laughs) bring it on are they are they just are they just loving it well no um (laughs) so the problem with global warming one of the issues especially in particular with archaea archaea are really important in global geochemical cycles so the nitrogen cycle the carbon cycle they're archaea that facilitate um certain portions of the the reactions that are involved in those cycles Mm -hmm. and if you change the climate you change the balance of all of that, and that's really not good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boy, I was really hoping for a silver <laughs> lining on this whole <laughs> global warming. There are other aspects to it, but you know. <laughs> Cactus, maybe will do all right. We'll see. Yeah. So, what? What? Um. What? What's your origin story? How did? What? Where did you first kind of start in this field, and how did you? eventually get interested in this? Yeah, so I've always been interested in how um, organisms interact with their environment. And so when I was an undergraduate, I started with in microbiology. I studied plant uh, microbe interactions. Um, then I did some internships in um, human disease, uh, infectious microbes. And then when I was in graduate school, I started studying bacterial extremophiles. So I studied an organism It's the record holder for the most radiation resistance. So you could put it at a Chernobyl Chernobyl disaster and it would survive. It can knit its DNA back together. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And so that got me really interested in sort of the limits of life. What can can life do? What can we throw at it and see how it responds? But bacteria, I wanted wanted a new frontier. Um, Bacteria are relatively better studied than archaea. And I wanted to figure out their molecular biology is unique um, and I wanted to sort of, I'm, I've always been an explorer. And so in postdoc, I started looking at looking at archaea. And I wanted really to probe those frontiers, not only the limits of life, but also the limits of knowledge. And also bring folks into that space um, by mentorship. Now, now I'm more into mentorship and bringing folks along, um, you know, trying to push the limits of what we know. So I'm not a big mi- microbiology guy. I know a little bit more about, say, regular old biology. <laughs> where, where, where is, where is the? Uh, I, I mean, how? Do, uh, the different categories of these things. How? Uh, what? What scale are you uh, kind of looking at uh, influence, and and where do you kind of cut things off in terms of mm-hmm. their influence into larger organisms? And yeah, no, that's a really good question. So um, microbiology. <laughs> typically encompasses um, viruses and virology, um, bacteriology and the study of bacteria per se and their metabolism. Um, But there are people who study um, fungi and yeast. They can be considered microbiologists. I personally classify it as anything that can live on its own as a single cell. Um, I think of that as microbiology. Hmm. Um, So, um, but microbes, single cell microbes can make multicellular forms. So for example, um, in the soil, myxococcus bacteria can make what's called a fruiting body that looks like a sort of a squishy flower. They, they have the social behavior and they can do foraging like that. Um, so there are some multicellular behaviors in microbiology. Um, not super common, but happens. Mm. Yeah. So what's what's the class that you're saying that you taught? Was it Origins of Cellular Life? Mm-hmm. Uh, so so what's um, it, just because we don't talk about this subject tons on on the podcast yet? Um, <laughs> this is this, this is the gateway. Um, what what's what's some of the first like entry level like kids show up the first day of class? What's some of the basics that they're going to hear about for people that are just completely new to this? Yeah, we start out. I I should have asked this question first, (laughs) by the way, but that's fine. That's okay. People can now, now after they hear this part, they can 
go back, listen again, and yeah. understand. It's iterative. It's an iterative podcast. <laughs> it really yeah. is. Yeah. So we uh, the first class we talk about the definition of life, um, because oh. in order to know when life started, you have to know what life is, and that's a really really hard question. So really, yeah, that's so, something that most people would think is very intuitive. Yeah. So it's a really interesting discussion, and and I have some colleagues um, who are philosophers of biology who think about that a lot. Um, and um, I, that's also the way I start my general microbiology class. What are the attributes that we're going to agree on for this class that define life? Interesting. And, yeah, the, the definition of life is not very well defined in biology. That is fascinating. So do you have to, yeah, do you have to, uh, because a lot of times if you start defining it, you can come up with an exception, right? So um, for example, if you give a metabolic definition, it needs to take in fuel and it needs to reproduce um, and produce waste. But a car can do that. Mm -hmm. Or um, it needs to be able to, I don't know, uh, it needs to, or fire can also do that, right? It takes in fuel of oxygen and it can grow and change. And so, hmm. yeah, hmm. a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of difficulty in defining life. So we spend the first week talking about that and then it comes up over and over again. So, well, we have like, uh, we have a few more minutes. <laughs> we, have, <laughs> we have up to 25 <laughs> minutes. Let's tackle it. Let's pin it. <laughs> let's, let's pin it down. What the heck is life? Yeah. What is life? Yeah. This should have been uh, this should have been episode number one of the <laughs> Here We Are podcast. We're now about two hundred and sixty deep. So sorry, everybody. We're <laughs> we're gonna go back. We're kind of kind of skipped over this part. <laughs> what is life? Yeah, Question number it's one. It's really hard to define. So um, there is, you know, you have to have the ability to um, do metabolism. Um, take in nutrients, um, uh, do some transformations of those nutrients to break bonds and generate energy or extract energy from those bonds to make stuff like cell membranes and things. And cell membranes, you also need a barrier from the outside to the inside um, in order to have a charge gradient so that you can fuel your metabolism. You have to have a continual energy supply in order to fight entropy. So that's a thermodynamic argument about life where you need a continual energy supply because otherwise you can't do anything and some people define life as or some people define death as equilibrium mm -hmm. equilibrium and that thermodynamic equilibrium is death because then you no, no longer have um, that charge gradient across a membrane mm -hmm. um, some people define it in terms of the capability that, to do that dark. that really is it's just <laughs> so much nicer way of talking about death yeah they're just like yeah, they're at they're, equilibrium <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i'm using that yeah um one other one that people like is the genetic life's definition. all about balance but, but <laughs> no death, no death not, more so yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> charge balance yeah because that's one of the truly um and if you want to talk about life you need to talk about something that's universal to all life mm -hmm. because you can't exclude one part of life just because so like for example, the, that charge gradient across a membrane um, is universal to life. So the mitochondria within cells that are the powerhouses of, like, you know, our cells, they have a, that that charge gradient across them in order to do the work to produce energy for us. Hmm. Um, so that's universal. Chemios, the chemiosmotic gradient, it's called, is universal to life. And that's not my idea. That's that one, the one the Nobel Prize a long time ago. <laughs> um, so. Um, some people give it a gen genetic definition. Um, so um, the ability to reproduce and um, to make progeny and be subject to um, um, evolution um, because, you know, you need to have a slightly error-prone DNA replication in order to make mistakes in order to evolve and adapt. Um, so that some people define it that way, um, the capability to evolve. Um, mm -hmm. Natural selection. 
Well, I'm, I'm wondering, going back to the Mars idea, and since life is so great, we're trying to spread it around everywhere. As we're trying to detect life on Mars, is there is there a, a worries of, of, again, like someone sneezing on Mars or whatever? And, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I think NASA is definitely about worried about that. Hmm. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there, there. I know a lot of efforts to make sure that we don't have contaminated ships. Mm. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a not a scientist at NASA, so I'm not involved in that research. But but if we need to get off this rock at some point and have <laughs> our bets, do we? Can't we just get our best and brightest Archaea up there and just bomb the place with our Archaea and? <laughs> See if it creates a new livable environment for us. No. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> this is really, I didn't know I was going to do edgy Archaea material. Oh, yeah. It's like, very <laughs> edgy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I've never made someone uncomfortable with Archaea ideas before. This is a delight for me. Um, but but you can you can potentially, um, here, here on Earth, um, kind of, shape the evolution of archaea to suit particular environments like in a lab setting yeah yeah there are a lot of folks trying to do um adaptive evolution in lab evolution experiments um so there's you know a lot of folks have been doing this in in the field of um, bacteriology and in archaea um like the example i told before Mm -hmm. about adapting them to higher and higher um uh acid conditions Mm -hmm. um so yeah, that's because then and then you look for what genetic changes have been made, and that gives you some ideas. Well, those genes must be involved in that adaptation, and it helps you identify new gene functions and mm. what those genes might be doing. So, my my brother um, works for he does big data for uh, a shipping company, and and uh, the stuff is so complicated that they're just kind of like throwing programs at problems and seeing what works in computer models and and a lot of times a lot of times like something then works and then they have to retrace the steps because they don't even understand the complex computation that happened or or how the algorithm did the job that it Mm -hmm. did is it is there something kind of similar going on with with those experiments does that make sense yeah well so we yeah we use um in collaboration um we use statistical models for example to try to understand the networks that we make um these networks of regulators that i talked about before and we need statistical collaborators to help us with machine learning models and um collecting all the data to try to make predictions about what would happen in a new environment um, and because if you can predict what happens then you can make rational decisions about what to change for example in the genetics um, for to you know to take the microbes that we have so hypersaline adapted archaea can make cool things like um, uh, polymers that resemble biodegradable plastic and they can make it from you know simple sources like sugars and if we can sort of learn about how using our, our models and our networks how they work under regular conditions can we you know predict if we make this tweak here in this uh, metabolic pipeline can we make more of that product we're we're doing very very basic research and so right now we're still just trying to figure out how it works normally mm-hmm. um, and we use a lot of statistical models to try to figure out you know how microbes grow and what happens if you change something to their environment or to those genes and and how does that change their growth and we need some we need some of these kinds of models for the networks and for understanding and um, quantifying microbial growth mm-hmm. Really so basic stuff speaking of mars and then other other planets so i'm, I'm not uh we've never had an astronomer on on this podcast i'm not a big astronomy person i, I need to think hard about what what we can cover on this podcast and what is astronomy is kind of overrepresented in science communication as as is uh in my opinion sorry astronomers it's very important in the universe it's so big i know we're so small but um but there what's the planet that that is they think there's an ocean under it it's like a frozen planet Enceladus or Titan it might be Enceladus or Titan those are prime candidates I'm also um not an astronomer yeah okay (laughs) I'm a molecular biologist let's just say in an environment where there's there's an ocean underlying uh, under under ice uh on a would, would you 
would you bet that there's more likely to be life in that sort of environment than something like Mars? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, We're getting really edgy today, aren't, aren't we? Really putting you on the spot. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the the key is trying to, again, trying to figure out how we're going to define life so we know how to detect it. Mm. And I can, you know, give you some names of other folks you can ask right. about that um, on your Fair other enough. podcast. I Isn't love it? how careful scientists are. <laughs> you got, it, well, What I love about scientists is they say, I don't know more than any other group of people yeah. on Earth. There's and that's a lot why, to know. That's why they're my favorite people. <laughs> <laughs> Most people are like, I got it. Yeah, there's life on that planet. Sure. <laughs> they never looked into it. Um, so, so now that we have a, just a full and complete understanding of exactly what life is. Uh, <laughs> you should have seen your face when I said that. Oh my God. You just, I just made you so nervous. That was, that was hilarious. Um, <laughs> so once in your class, you have like some semblance of an idea of, of what life might be considered. Uh, what's what's your next step? Yeah, so then we, we go chronologically. <coughs> we start, we go from um, the early Earth and um, talk about what formed the Earth and then um, what the early Earth conditions were like and how it changed um, over the first couple billion years of its life, uh, of the Earth's, I shouldn't say life, of the Earth's beginning. And then um, from there, we talk about the conditions, the sort of prebiotic chemistry. So how the first, uh, um, uh, how the first chemicals were made. And then we start talking about the first cells, the last universal common ancestor. And then we talk about the tree of life. We talk about archaea and our extremophiles a lot toward the end of the semester, when I get into my comfort zone. What is, uh, what? what's the... What's the spectrum of archaea? Like, what what are if you had to pick two archaea on Earth that are the most different from one another? What do they look like, and what are what are their differences? That's a really good question. So, you mean different in terms of their genes, or in terms of where they live, or in terms of what they can do? Um, all of those. <laughs> <laughs> Any anything you want to take a whack at? I was I was worried that that was going to be like maybe too vague or challenging no of a it's, a, it's a really but. good question because i guess from a genetic standpoint you could ask what are the two most unrelated groups of archaea um we usually try to figure out who is relate who is closely related to whom um and that's sort of building a tree um and again i'm you know i'm a molecular biologist not necessarily a phylogeneticist but uh, maybe a more fun way to answer the question is the most different environments you could imagine them living in. Um, so one of my colleagues does field work in the Atacama Desert, and she finds on the surface of rocks um, extremely dry condition adapted archaea, and they like high salt, and they live on salt crystals um, on the surface of rocks, and they pull moisture from the atmosphere in order to get water. There's hardly any water, so they pull, they do what's called hygroscopic activity, and they pull water out of the atmosphere to grow. Okay, so that's the Atacama Desert. is very, very dry. And then you have microbes living in the deep-sea hydrothermal vents where it's really hot and there's a lot of water around, and they're generating energy using minerals and carbon dioxide and hydrogen. Um, so those are really, really different environments, but there are archaea in each one. How are you finding archaea in these environments? Do you just send the people that you like the least <laughs> so, so. out into the desert to be like, go try and find some archaea out there, see what happens? So I don't do field work. I use um, sort of lab rat microbes that I grow in the lab, and we compare between related species to see what their what their um, responses are and what molecules they use to survive. But some of my colleagues go themselves to the desert and go, um, I'm not sure how you would have to talk to someone who studies deep sea vents, but they send these special like um, vessels down to the deep sea and collect samples. And well, that's fun, though. You're just like playing a video game, basically. <laughs> you got joysticks, you're, you're running this thing. I'll sign up for that. But the person that goes into the desert, where do they even start? Yeah. Look, it's, I mean, it's a 
huge expanse. How do you decide yeah. what parts of that? Yeah, there are a lot. So there are a lot of I maybe I'll speak from my own experience. I recently went out to visit the Great Salt Lake um, with some folks at the Great Salt Lake Institute, and they brought me to some really awesome places. Um, and they have frequent sampling locations where they have access. Um, so, for example, they brought me to the Spiral Jetty, which is on the um, the northeast side of the Great Great Salt Lake, which is land this huge land art uh, form. And um, you could they sample there frequently because they they find certain rock types of rocks and um, certain types of microbes there. And sometimes people like to do longitudinal studies um, with field work, and they'll go and sample at the same place that they have access to over certain seasons or periods of time. Sometimes people sample at different depths in the same place. So there are a lot of times there are um, certain sampling sites that, that folks find either are A, accessible, or B, you know, interesting from a certain standpoint. Hmm. Um, yeah. Hmm. But I don't, I'm, I would someday eventually love to have a field program. I don't have one now. Um, but because we've been focusing more on the genetics and the molecular biology of s- certain species, exemplar species that um, at one point were isolated from environments, sometimes you just find them. So, for example, um, the organism, the radiation resistant organism I worked on in grad school was initially isolated from spam that had been uh, that like that had rotted hmm. and after it was irradiated. So they're like, how did this spoil? How did the spam spoil? And so they isolated this this radiation-resistant microbe from it. What's what's the exemplar species of uh, archaea look like? Like the Brad Pitt of our <laughs> of our archaea? What's what's, <laughs> what's that one look like? And then what's like a what's like a Steve Buscemi? Like, this one seems a little off, but we like it. Um, well, we would, we typically call them model organisms. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and they, they're, you can grow them pretty easily in the lab. Um, and the, so the ones we study grow with oxygen and they grow pretty fast. They, you know, you can get twice as many of them in about two hours, four hours. Um, but we just dump a bunch of salt in to make sure that they're, uh, that they can, they can live because they need the salt. Um, you can um, uh, work on their genetics, so you can take genes out and put them in um, to figure out what those genes are doing. You can um, grow up enough of them so that you can do experiments to measure all the genes at once um, or profile all the proteins at once. Um, you can break them open and get lots of proteins so you can study their proteins. So those are called model organisms. And E. coli is the model organism of bacteria. There's another one called Bacillus subtilis. So uh, every domain of life has sort of their, what well, they're called model organisms. And there are those also for um, for the more um, multicellular styled organisms like fruit flies and um, worms and things like that. So um, those model organisms are also existing in archaea. And luckily, there are more and more model organisms now in the last five years or so for the really high temperature adapted ones, the ones that live in acid conditions. Um, there are finally easier ways to grow them in the lab and do genetics on them, thanks to the work of my my colleagues. So how are you grouping archaea um, and, and categorizing them? Um, so... Uh, a lot of times we think about them in terms of the, the genetic definition, the phylogenetic definition. Mm. Um, so the ones I work on are in a branch called Uriarchiota. I don't mean to be too technical, but... Um, too late. <laughs> <laughs> that ship has sailed. No, I'm kidding. You're doing great. So that br- that branch of archaea includes a lot of the model organisms, but there are a couple of model organisms in a different branch called Crenarchiota, um, which are more similar to the... Eucar- to the sort of higher organisms or eukaryotes hmm. so we need we need more model organisms in some of these newer branches of archaea those are harder to get hmm. like it took someone there was a recent preprint um, that came out that someone cultured an osgard archaean but it took 12 years to get it into culture so some of them are hard to work on some people collect baseball cards. Some people, <laughs> some people collect archaea. Right. Trying to check off all yeah. of those. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, well, so I have uh, one or two more questions, but this is a this is a good time, just so I don't forget, because um, I need to get you out of here in just a few minutes. I, I have my guest each week plug a nonprofit of their choice. Did you have one in mind? Yeah. Can I have three? You can have as many as you'd like. <laughs> so, okay, so um, 
couple people close to me we've lost um, because of various diseases. And so I wanted to um, urge everyone to contribute to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Um, in particular, there's something called team and training where you can, you know, exercise with a group and do an event to raise money for Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Um, the American Lung Association is another one, um, lung.org. Um, and then Girls on the Run is a third one that is really great. Um, it builds self-confidence and resilience in girls and gets them running, um, gives them the mind-body connection early on and teaches them you know, how to feel a sense of accomplishment. So those are three that are important. You're a runner? I am. Mm, good. Mm-hmm. Trying to get into it. It's good. Just started doing Orange Theory. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yes. We'll see. I'm... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm not the most self-disciplined person, but boy, do I feel better after I get a run in. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. All right. So where do you see some of the, you can use whatever expansive time you want, but some of the um, the future of this work going, like what, what new maybe technologies are you excited about advancing the field or, or where do you think um, some of the discoveries or, or clarifications that might be right around the corner? Yeah, so um, a couple of things that I'm particularly interested in and excited about. One is um, um, there are new technologies that folks are developing to look at individual cells of archaea in real time. So we know a lot about um, cell biology of eukaryotic cells, um, a little bit less, but still a lot about bacterial cell biology. We, ha- we know next to nothing about archaeal cell biology. How do they grow? How do they divide? What um, molecules are they using to help them grow and divide? That has a lot of implications. Understanding those molecules and how they grow has a lot of implications for understanding the, these evolutionary questions, um, because a lot of archaea have um, like cytoskeletal molecules that are like those of eukaryotes. Um, so advances in imaging. So um, some of my colleagues um, have, you know, they're inventing different types of microscopes to look at extremophiles. Um, we've invented some technologies with our co- collaborators to look in real time at movies of cells dividing. Um, and then the other the other thing I would say is understanding uh, metabolism. So there are so many unique types of met- metabolism in archaea, and um, that's another thing I'm really interested in. Like, how do they take unusual, you know, um, substrates to grow on or nutrients, and, and how do they grow and divide? And those two areas that maybe will come together Right, because you need nutrients in order to grow and divide and look at single cells. So, well, thank you very much, Amy Schmidt, for joining me and giving listeners a clear and precise definition of exactly what life is. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me, Shane. <laughs> you were absolutely wonderful. Thanks for being on Stand Up Science you. as well. You are great on that as well. So Thanks. thank you so much. And thank you, listeners, for being such curious, wonderful people. We'll talk with you more next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, we're talking with Earl Miller at MIT, talking about the brain, talking about um, attention, self-control, a lot of prefrontal cortex stuff. Guy wrote one of the uh, one of the top five cited papers in neuroscience, and uh, he's not only super bright, but very uh, very friendly and uh, a great communicator as well. And and we uh, we even I I he let me indulge in some uh some more kind of philosophical and and out there questions as well so it made for a really great episode so make sure and check that out guys read more books that's what i try to tell myself every day i don't read enough wish i read more always feel better when i do i do listen to a fair amount of audiobooks one of the one of the things i'm i'm doing right in life uh, all the stuff I'm, uh, I need to exercise more and eat better and all that. One of the things I do write, I listen to audiobooks pretty frequently. I'm, I'm just finishing How to Change Your Mind. Um, that might shock you that I haven't read that yet, but I actually don't read many books on psychedelics. Um, prefer to, uh, uh, prefer to kind of, um, not be influenced 
too much in my own experiences. But it's a cool book. Almost done with it. Writing some material, some new material for the Head Talk show. Picking up some new info here and there. And what am I listening to my audiobooks on? Libro.fm. Why? Because they're an independent book company where if you use offer code here we are you get three months for the price of one to give it a shot and then after that your subscription um 50 of it goes uh, 50 of the profits every time you download a book 50 of the profits goes to your local independent bookstore you pick it yourself the bookstore in your town the bookstore in your hometown the bookstore in your in your kids town whatever it might be um the local independent bookstores are uh rare they're they're you know slowly going away and maybe there's ways of turning that around because independent bookstores are fantastic we want to keep them alive guys and um you know people that own them they're doing it because they they love it and they believe in it uh, no one's getting rich in the in the independent bookstore scene so a way to support them a way to support me a way to support a cool ass company libro.fm is to go on today they have the same catalog same price as anyone else they just split their profits with independent bookstores why wouldn't you if you're into audiobooks make the jump over there's no reason not to if you're not into audiobooks for goodness sakes guys I, well you know a lot of you you don't you don't drive as much as i do it's very understandable maybe there's not a place for them in your life but if you do have a chance instead of instead of just listening to um the the same radio station you guys still listen to radio stations i'm gonna pretend that you do for this point instead of listening to the same old that mix it up a little bit throw an audiobook in that brain i should give more suggestions yeah let's see what what else uh is uh, i mean sapiens is uh, that if you get into that that's like a lot of people have read sapiens it's a fantastic book. There's a reason why a lot of people have. So you could talk about it with more people. So that's cool. Books, guys. Get into them. I'll suggest more uh, later. And um, I hope you're having a good holidays. Thanks for being supportive. Thanks for spreading the word for me about the shows in Lincoln, Wichita, Oklahoma City, Dallas, and Austin. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Stop it. Stop it. A, podca- <clears throat> A podcast network.